that is important, but you'll find at different points in your life there are aspects of truth that become very important depending on what God's doing around you and what you're called to do next. And so there is a realm in which I believe what God has the church, this church, to be prepared for is to move back into the city of New Orleans and to be prepared to take the kingdom into that city. And that's going to be a battle. There's not a better picture that's available to us. It's going to be a war. It's going to be a fight. And there are aspects of fighting that start at the shores of my own life and then extend into those around me and extend into the community and into the world. And I need to learn how to fight on all those fronts. And so learning to fight, I think, is a very important topic for us. So this is the third part in the series. If you haven't been here for the other parts, please uh, pursue those messages. You can easily download stuff uh, online, or you can pick up CDs and order them, pick them up here at the, the book nook. But there are two other parts before this that are very important. In your outline, we start off just reminding ourselves that life is war. And, you know, I've kind of wondered, I, I caught eye the other day of uh, the series that we had done, I think it was sitting on a shelf in my office, of um, you know, reclaiming the ground of discipleship. And I remember asking Eric if he put something together. He put together a picture from war. <laughs> I thought, man, this war thing, are, are we kind of in this war theme a little bit too much? This war thing's all over the things that we're talking about as a church. And you're going to see today as we walk through some of these scriptures, the war theme is all over the Bible. And, and if that's not something that you're coming in contact with in the world of the church, it, it probably would be because popular teaching in the church doesn't draw out an invitation to war as much as it seems today to draw out an invitation to comfort, enjoyment, self-improvement. Those are much more popular topics. And so if the pulpit begins to get driven by what is popular, what is feel-good, what is drawing a crowd then we, we take and gather from the Bible, and you can do this because the Bible does have a lot to say about those categories. You can draw those elements out and serve them up as a regular diet. But I find Christianity becomes very disillusioning, and I'm concerned about this for what the age in which we live, is we get disillusioned by the fact that life doesn't seem to be as easy as the brochure. You know, the Christian brochure, the one that's kind of being written by the, the five-minute devotional materials and the radio or TV preacher that presents life as just this massive, fun activity of self-improvement and learning to get and achievement and, and what you can have. And, well, but how do you get some of that stuff? You know, in the Bible, you fight for some of those things. In the Bible, you lay down your life and your blood and your faith and you wrestle and contend for those things. Because life in this fallen world, life here is war. We covered, we began this with a couple of guys here, John Piper talking about, you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. You can't even begin to be praying in a biblical way until you realize the contention that's taking place for the very things that you're praying about. The topic list how you go after them, the tenacity of your own heart, the sense of this is not easy and it's being opposed. Should I keep praying for it? I prayed twice and it didn't happen. Well, if you're informed about it, it may take a few lives to take that hill. 
Well, you're going to pray differently, and you're going to hang in there when, when it's time to pray. J.C. Ryle, from, the pastor from the 19th century, said, the first thing I have to say is this. True Christianity is a fight. The warfare I speak of is the spiritual warfare. It is the fight which everyone who would be saved must fight about his soul. This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. And yet it is as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. The true Christian is called to be a soldier and must behave as such from the day of his conversion to the day of his death. He must fight. You know, one of the passages we, we began with is that passage in 1 Timothy chapter 6, where Paul says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness. There's almost in that little flee and pursue, there's an element where the war involves defense and offense. There's strategy here in the kingdom of God where you are told, flee these things, protect yourself from these things, pursue these things, run after these things. So you and I ought to have a defensive and an offensive strategy in the way in which we live our lives. When you wake up in the morning, you better be ready to protect yourself. There's an element of the, of the armor of God that, that, I don't know whether Peter will get to some of that when he does the next installment or not, but there's an element where we need to protect ourselves in this war. You cannot be casual about that. There's one thing to fail to possess something that God has given, to not go on the offensive and get what God said we're to have as the people of God. There's another thing to fail to, to protect yourself. See, because if you fail to protect yourself, the enemy will attack you. He is going to attack you. If you fail to possess something, you kind of miss out on the benefit of it. The kingdom suffers by not being advanced in that category of your life. But if you fail to protect yourself, you will suffer loss. Because the enemy will not fail to go on the offensive. He will never fail to go on the offensive. So there's a, there's a realm that where we are needing to learn how to flee some things and pursue. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. There's aspects that every one of us as believers that have been called into, that are there, but they are not automatic. You will not automatically experience them. As much as we can say how amazing it is that the cross has purchased such incredible promises for us, but yet, post the cross, you still have the Apostle Paul saying, fight in order to take hold of the things that God has purchased by the blood of his own son. So you and I are called to fight. There's a degree in, of living in our lives, relationally, obtaining peace for our, our own soul, fruitfulness in our lives. That's not going to happen unless we come out fighting in order to obtain it in our lives. Now, I want to draw our attention because we've limited this series in its size to, to cover three aspects. And I want to show you all three aspects in a passage in James. James chapter 3. This warfare that you and I are engaged in is going to be fought on three fronts. And it's important that if we're going to be in this battle successfully, that all three fronts must be addressed in our understanding and in our practice. You know, World War II, I remember as a kid, I used to love to play this World War II game that one of my friends had. 
and, and you were in charge of the allied forces or the Axis forces. And you had to strategize not only in troop movements, but in troop production as well. You had to spend your country's resources to produce and anticipate what was coming. So you had to, in in your turn, you had to anticipate in my next turn, what is he going to do to me? And what do I want to do to him? How many tanks will I need? How many ships will I need? How many aircraft will I need? How many ground support troops will I need? And you'd have to think through all those realms and spend your nation's economy to build those things for the turn that was coming. Well, in a very real way, I mean, the, the World War II was fought on the ground, hand-to-hand combat with the, with the army having to advance on the ground. But then there was a naval strategy that had to take place. You had to control the sea because if you didn't, the war was coming to your shores. And there were elements that could only be fought and advantages that could only be gained by the Air Force and what they did strategically. Well, there's a, a sense in spiritual warfare that there are three grounds that we must fight on. There is ground forces, naval forces, and air forces that have to be taken into account when we go to fight. And you're going to see all three of those in this passage here. James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts... Do not boast and be false to the truth. That is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual or natural, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That's an interesting guarantee. But the wisdom from above is first pure then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Now, now this, this passage draws all the strategies of war into one section. 
In this, you know, and, and think with me, because sometimes when we get into spiritual warfare, we don't stay with all three categories. We, we tend to major in the demonic, quite honestly, in the church world. If they're going to teach on spiritual warfare, you're probably going to major in the demonic realm. Well, that's in this passage. We are told in this battle that we need to resist the devil by submitting ourselves to God. We have to resist the devil. He's a real player on the scene here. But that's not the only dimension of spiritual warfare. When you awake in the morning, it's more likely that the first thing you're encountering is the passages right above that in chapter 4. You're encountering your own desires. You get up in the morning with an agenda. You want life to be a certain way. And you're going to encounter somebody else who they have an agenda as well. They probably live in the house with you, probably sleeping in the bed next to you. They have a different plan in their heart. They have cravings and desires that they wanted to get up and achieve, and you have them too. And now you have a conflict. And the source of that conflict isn't necessarily that the devil got up with you, although you may think you're married to the devil. The source of the conflict is your own appetites and desires. Well, when you back away from this and you look at this whole context, where, where did you get those cravings and desires? Well, first of all, you didn't need any outside help. Sin was dwelling inside of you. So you already had this great potential to have a strong craving and desire Because sin dwells in you, and you have in you the capacity to be ambitious for something. Now, ultimately, that that capacity was given to us to be ambitious for the glory of God. To live our lives passionately, spending our energy, being devoted to God's glory being seen in all of creation. That's the capacity we have, but we've taken it from God and we've given it to other things. We've given it to our own agenda now. So we have this internal dwelling and passion. But what's interesting is you want certain things. You just don't have cravings. It's like, you know, I got up this morning. I'm, I don't know what I want. I'm just, I want something and I can't figure out what it is. No, usually you know what you want. You want your life to be a certain way. You want certain things. You have an agenda for your life. You don't like certain things about your life. You got up in the morning. You felt bad about your life. Why? Because I didn't have this and this and this in my life. Where did you get the idea to want this and this and this? What shaped those particular flavors of cravings? Well, the world did. This is not wisdom which comes down from above. It is earthly, natural, and demonic. So there, now there's the other player. The other player is the world. So there's the world that's on the scene of battle, and you must learn how to fight the world, which is what we'll talk about today. Matt talked about a few weeks ago, learning to fight the flesh. I wake up in the morning, sin is dwelling in me, so I can't can't blame it all on the devil and say, the devil made me do it. Uh, No, you, you didn't really need the devil to sin. You'd have done fine, but he did come on the scene. And so he comes, you know, you've already got a flame of sin going on inside of you. He just brings the gasoline. Um, it'd be nice, you know, Jesus was the alternative to that. When the devil came pouring gasoline on him, there was no flame. You couldn't set him afire because there was no sinful flame in him. But for man, there's a little pilot light that's always lit. The principle of sin operates in every one of us all the time. So if the devil just come along and be faithful to pour a little fuel on that, I'll get up in the morning 
with a ravenous appetite for something, but that something has been informed by the world. So I must learn and be careful to fight the world. And when we awake in the morning, I have my little fighter night standing right next to the cold water tap, reminding me every morning when I wake up that today you must fight. That's literally what I say. Actually, I I quote a scene from Lord of the Rings. (laughs) I wish it was from the Bible, but it's Lord of the Rings. And then I move to the Bible next. But it's the day that Aragorn stands before all the people and describes what could be happening to mankind. But he says, but not today. Today we fight. And every morning when I get up, I look at that fighter verse and I say, uh, today we fight. And I, and I think through the scriptures that are going to help me to fight today. I, I remember I start with 1 Timothy chapter 6 and I tell myself, fight, Keith, fight the good fight of the faith today. Fight the good fight. Lay hold of the promises of God today. Fight to obtain them today. That's a frame of mind. I can get up in the morning and feel totally different and go after totally different things. Or I can get up in the morning ready to fight. And it's been wonderfully helpful to be meditating on these things. But today let's learn about how to fight the world. This is going to be a little bit, uh, I think, challenging to some of our traditions and the way in which we use language and the ideas that we have about the world. This, this would be a category in which language from the Bible makes the Christian weird in the world because it's almost like it sounds overboard. I mean, look at just James 4 where we were there in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. I mean, come on. What, what's up with that? What's so bad about the world? I mean, why, why such a rabid view of the world? Doesn't that sound kind of extreme? Doesn't that sound kind of David Koresh? Oh, you know, freak out. It's the world. Well, why is the Bible sounding this way? And it sounds this way a lot. Well, it, it would be necessary for us to understand how the Bible uses the term the world. See, because we use it differently. You know, when you throw out a phrase like the world is your oyster, you don't sound like this passage, you know? It sounds like the world, it's the land of opportunity. There's so much opportunity out there in the world. It sounds like a pretty good place. We use the term world, depending on the setting, we get used to things like geography and anthropology. You know, we're thinking about geographic spaces. We're talking about terrains and mountains and lakes and rivers and where people live. And then we're talking anthropology, the world, you know, the people groups that are all over the world. So when we use the term the world, we're using it differently than how the Bible is using it in these type passages. And there's other places where the Bible is just describing the world as the environment that we live in, the cosmos, the universe that God created. Uh, It's describing trees. You know, this is not a passage that's trying to inform us to go out and hate the grass that we're walking on. You know, you shouldn't be cursing it while you're cutting it up with your lawnmower. It's like, cursed you. I hate you. You are not my friend. I am loyal to God. Uh, This is not where that passage is going. There's an aspect of the world that is to be enjoyed. There's an aspect that God has created. And I really can't go off into that, but I don't don't want you to get flipped out on this in the wrong way. I want you to flip out in the right way on this. I don't want you to get flipped out in the wrong way to where you walk out of here just hating anything that's a form of pleasure. You know, honey, no salt in the food. We hate flavor. We hate everything that's enjoyable. It's the world. It's worldly. Um, 
No, not everything. Remember, God created the world with certain dynamics to it to be enjoyed, right? Taste buds are one of the, the deepest theological things you will ever come to understand about God. They really are. I mean, you understand. I mean, you could have a port in the side of your head that you just kind of put a, a hose up to and just goop came into it and you were energized for the day. It's like, okay, that's how God created you getting energy each day. Just, you know, plug that thing in, go, and you're good. But no, God dazzled your mouth with taste buds so that when you sat down and ate, you could go, wow, this is good, right? So there are things that God has created that are to be enjoyed. But yet in this passage, we're being warned about friendship with the world, strongly warned. Well, let's walk through why this warning is here. What is the world? Ephesians chapter 2 in your outline, verse 1. It says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. It's an interesting phraseology there. You have dead people who are following something. Right, so dead people in the Bible are not inactive people. They're not dispassionate people, as we'll see in a second. They are following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Well, you get a, a real education here from this verse about the world. The world in this passage is seen as something that's on a course. It, it has a track that it runs on, and that course is being informed by the prince of the power of the air. There is a spiritual personage that is informing the course that the world travels on. Now, remember, the world is made up of people and ideas. So it's not just made up of spiritual beings like the devil. It's made up of people. So at some point, the devil's got to get his ideas to become operative in the realm of man. And that's exactly what it says that it does here. This course is ultimately authored by the devil, but it is being acted out by man because it says he is at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, now whether, whether we look up at humanity, and I'm concerned that we don't look up at humanity correctly, we look up at humanity and we, we pull out this component of spirituality that's in the world. And we just see people are people. I mean, there's a few bad apples, right? We all understand that. There's a few bad apples. Historically, you got your Hitlers and Stalins and uh, Jeffrey Dahmers and folks that just, you know, just there's a few bad apples here. Is that how you see the world? For the most part, people are good people, except for the few bad ones, and they're the ones that are really stirring up. Or, or do you see that there is a spiritual personage influencing the appetites and cravings and desires were at work in the sons of disobedience. And Paul is humble enough to say, and that was us. It's not those people. That was us that he was at work in, stirring up in us passions of the flesh and desires of the mind. Well, now we're into the realm of concepts. See, the passion of the flesh, the desire of the mind is something you can conceptualize and that you want. 
It is those stirrings and cravings in the, in the life of man that create the course of this world. This world is on a course. It's going somewhere, and it's being directed on that course intentionally. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19 says, The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world, as it exists today, lies in the power of the evil one. He has power and rights, if you will, to act within the realm of this creation with his influence. You know, I think when we, when we think about the world, I, I want to encourage us to, to not think geography or even anthropology, but to think territory, to think turf, as in turf wars and gangs, and you have wandered into someone else's territory. And I think that's how C.S. Lewis says, enemy-occupied territory. That is what the world is. Now, how did it become this way? And that there are sketchy images here of, of how the spiritual component of this world, with the devil actually having the right to reign over it with titles like the prince of the power of the air, the god of this world, somewhere in the past, he obtained the right to operate in this way and influence the world spiritually. We kind of get a glimpse of that from Revelation 12, even though this may not be historically behind us, but it does give us a picture that things go on in the heavens that have empowered and given him rights. It says, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So before the war came here, there was a war in the heavens. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's quite a title. This guy who is setting the course for the world is the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels, interesting way to call them that, which are demons, his angels were thrown down with him. So we have this depiction Revelation 12 talks about, you know, Satan is depicted as this, this morning star. And, in, and the stars in the Old Testament are talked about as angelic beings in many places where they actually watch God. The stars rejoice as God's creation came into fruition. Well, Revelation 12 says that this being, when he was thrown down, he swept a third of the stars from the heavens with him. And this is, I want to sober you for a moment because this for many years in my life has been a sobering concept. The Bible doesn't say a lot about it, so we can't elaborate on it very extensively. But you have in some time in the past, and this must be before uh, the temptation in the garden because you have the devil on hand in the garden who does not have God's agenda anymore in his life. He does not want what God wants. He is against God. He is God's enemy and he has found opportunity to go after Adam and Eve in the garden. Sometime before then, there is a scene in the heavens where God has created Satan, and it appears as though Satan is the crown jewel of God's creation. He is full of beauty. He's ornate. He is capturing in beauty. 
And something happens inside of Satan where he sees himself and he sees the value that he has and who he is, but he sees himself apart from God. He doesn't, it says pride was found in his heart. You know, pride comes in when you, when pride can only exist in the vacuum where God is not present. You get God on the scene in your life. Pride cannot grow in that environment. The greatness of God causes it not to be able to grow. Well, somehow in Satan's heart, he began to be convinced of his own beauty, so much so that he began to reason that, you know, I should be the one being worshipped. I should make my throne ascend above the heavens, and I should be the one that creation calls to and looks to. Now, in this realm... This is a realm where God exists in his glory and the angels exist for however long they have existed at this point. And they're all loyal to God and they're all God worshipers until the day this deceiver has pride in his heart. Now this is what blows my mind. How did the third of the angels follow this knucklehead? It's not as though they had watched too many of the wrong movies and were duped by the world. They were, they were in heaven, beholding God. Remember, it's the angels that gasp for air when they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. They gaze upon God in an environment that, that draws the worship of God out of them as they enjoy God. Those guys got duped and followed the devil so much so that God put them out of heaven as well? Listen, that blows my mind. And it also wisely informs me that if in that environment, this created being could deceive and dislodge the loyalties of creation to not follow God, then I am child's play. And I must be very wise and informed about this being and the environment that he has created that I live in, in a fallen body, that if it were not for the grace of God, wants to rule the universe, my own universe, my own way. I see, I already have in me, there's a pilot light in me. It's already lit. You just need to introduce something flammable to me and I want to go up with it. And this enemy is this one put out of heaven who has created an environment that the Bible is terming the world. So that's what we're describing here. C.S. Lewis says, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. This, This would be perhaps right at the top of the list of mistakes made by Christians. It is to assume that the world that they live in has goodness in it that is not a part of God. Somehow, things are okay. To believe that the world is a neutral place. Oh, there's good and bad in it, but the world in and of itself, its concepts and ideas and people, is a neutral place. The world is not a neutral place. If you live in it thinking that way, if you think for a second that you live in a safe environment... You have already been deceived. 
that would be the best deception to start with for me to convince you that you are not in a toxic world. You are in a safe world. Breathe the air. It's okay. It's not okay. Listen to David Wells thought about the world. He says, this world is the way in which our collective life and society is organized around the self in substitution for God. Always remember, this world was intended to be wired with God being the central source of everything. He is the life giver, the life sustainer. He's the reason for life. He is the the centerpiece of beauty and, and pleasure and joy. All of it is supposed to be wired to him. The only way sin can exist in that environment is to dewire creation from God and wire it to something else. So everything that you and I do in the realm of sin is because something is being substituted for God. It is life, the world is life characterized by self-righteousness, self-centeredness, self-satisfaction, self-aggrandizement, and self-promotion with a corresponding distaste for the self-denial proper to union with Christ. Underline that little phrase. Discuss it in your small groups. Because there is, there is a war that, that has created in us a distaste for self-denial. We do not like to be told no. We do not like to have our appetites short-circuited. We do not like to be told to do things a different way than what we have made sense out of. We don't like that. There's a distaste in us. A little bit later... Well, says the world offers itself as an alternative center of allegiance. It provides counterfeit meaning. It is the means used by Satan in his warfare with God. To be part of the world is to be part of the satanic hostility to God. That is why worldliness is so often idolatrous and why the biblical sanctions against it are so stringent. You understand why such a rabid statement? You adulterous people. If you love the world, then you're an enemy of God. Well, because the Bible is looking at the world accurately. Not as geography, but as a spiritual greenhouse in which there is a prince operating in and who's flooding the environment with ideas and concepts in order to further the course that he has set this world on. That's the world. Let me take us to the front lines of the battle that you and I will fight concerning the world. Ultimately, the battle that you and I fight in spiritual warfare is a battle for faith. It's ultimately boiling down to, at any given moment, what do I believe? Do I agree with God? Do I believe God? Or do I believe something else? Let me put it to you where we really live. What will you believe is truly in your best interest? That's the battle you're fighting every moment, every day. Every image that comes across your eyes, every temptation that that dawns your doorstep. Every moment the battle is, is that question. What will you believe is truly in your best interest? What will bring me satisfaction? What will reward me? What will bring me pleasure? What will bring joy to my life? And the world presents itself and hopefully... If we're walking with God, the truth of God is presenting itself. Now, for too many of us, there's not even a presentation of the truth of God. It's too far removed from us. But the world never stops presenting itself and offering something to you and promising something to you and asking for your vote in the realm of faith. Please, believe me. Believe this. 
Believe in having this. Pursue this. Go after this. It's important. You must have this now. And I want to explore a little bit of that, but, but realize this. In the world in which we live, when, the, when sin came into the world, if you will, the world got turned upside down. So you and I are walking on the, on the ceiling right now. And we, we don't realize that, though. The world is upside down. See, there's a spiritual reality to our hearts that longs for things that the world has carefully created the environment to call them weird and backwards. And Jesus had to walk around confronting people. You know, when he walks up to people and he says, you know, if you really want to gain life, you have to lose it. You want to live, then you have to die. See, it's like the world's been flipped upside down. And so you need to be careful that when the world comes along and says, live, 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 that it's not pointing you into the exact opposite of what really spiritually will cause you to live. Because we live in a world that is upside down. And we need eyes from God to see the world as it needs to be seen so that we go after things that look upside down. We go after the right thing, but they're going to look upside down to us. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12 says, Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. And later on in Corinthians, it says, for the wisdom of this world is folly with God, right? It's upside down. The wisdom, the crown jewel of what the world says, this is a good idea. Here's how you should do this. Now, this is going to come to you in all kinds of categories of where you live. This is what you should do with your money. This is what you should do with your time. This is what you should do in relationships, So it comes into our life in the categories where we live and it comes off saying, this is wisdom. But remember, James has already told us there's wisdom that comes from God and there's wisdom that is earthly, natural, and demonic that comes to us. And this passage tells us, from God's standpoint, the wisdom of the world looks like the dumbest thing you've ever come up with. So we're going to find ourselves at odds quite often with God if we look at the world and we say, oh man, is that a great idea? And God is standing back saying, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Well, how can I get in agreement with God? Well, by the Spirit. The Spirit has to give me illumination, revelation, that that really is not something to pursue or put my hope in. Now, here's, here's where the battle lines are. Look at how Paul says this. We impart this in words. We impart this in words. This is, this is where the battle line is. I'll put it in your outline this way. What you believe must come to you in the form of concepts, ideas, philosophies, statements, promises, etc. It's got to come in words. Therefore, ultimately, the battle is being fought in the realm of your thoughts. This is ultimately where spiritual warfare finds the battle lines. It's one thing to be behind the lines. It's one thing when you get to the front lines and you see the trenches and there's smoke and there's fire and there's shots being waged back and forth. On that front lines, when you fight the spiritual warfare, you are fighting a battle for thinking. The thoughts are the place of the battle. See, we impart these things, these deep spiritual truths get imparted by words, concepts, ideas. Look at what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 in your outline. It says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy. I mean, wait, 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 philosophy? 
You can't even touch philosophy. There's no chains involved. There's no guns involved. Nobody pulled a sword out. He doesn't say anything about weaponry. You can't take me captive with an idea. Oh, really? Look at your life and tell me whether that's true or not. And when you, the tragedy of human life that is bound up in ideas, thoughts, belief systems, how you feel about yourself, what you think about your future, how you've digested what did and didn't happen in your life a certain way, what ambitions are in you that are not getting satisfied, that's producing in you a sense of frustration and anger and it's dislodging relationships in your life and bringing destruction all around you. It's because you and I are on an invisible leash tied to some philosophy. Ideas, they're strong. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world or principles of the world and not according to Christ. The world in which you live has philosophies, traditions, and elemental principles that govern it. That if you're not careful, and this is my great concern for us, the world that we live in is so foundationally formed by philosophies and elemental principles and traditions that, it, that you may not even be aware of how many of them you have just stamped as okay. Okay. That one's okay. That one's okay. Because it's just part of the world that we live in. It's part of the air we breathe. This is why spiritual warfare, once you wake up in the morning and sin has already been up, as we've said before, it's made coffee, got a full-blown spread going on, it's reading the newspaper, it's welcoming you to life. It's got a plan, it's got an agenda for the day, whether you have thought through anything at all, sin is already, already. It's got the planner out, Say, I got a busy day today. I'm glad you finally got up. Sin is active. And then, then, then the first breath of consciousness, you breathe in the world. The ideas of the world, the fuel of the world comes to sin. It's a little pilot light. Ah, thanks. We needed that. Glad. Could you suck in a little bit more? More comes in from the world. The environment that you live in is toxic. See, the Christian needs to get up in the morning and put on a big mask. That he, he breathes. He has to be in the world, so he must take it in carefully. He must filter what he takes in. And we're going to filter it through the Word of God. Look in, look in uh, Second Timoth- uh, Second Corinthians. This is such a critical verse. One of those verses that's touching every day of our lives, whether we're realizing it or not. Second Corinthians 10 Verse 3 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. No no apology for the use of war here. Life is war. Paul understood that. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what are the strongholds and what are we destroying? Verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. There, There is the filter that you put on in the morning. 
Because from the moment you awake through the local news that chose to tell you that this is the most important thing that happened last night, this is what's going to affect your life the most, right? I mean, there's, you know, how many Christians right now, I appreciated what Peter shared a moment ago, how many Christians are going into a panic because the news media is telling you about the economy? Panic, fear. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? What's, what's the future of my life like? Well, how about getting out the Bible? Since when has your future ever been in the hands of the economy? Ever for a moment as a Christian? Ever been in the hands of the economy? Like we need to make sure, you know, we got our fiscal policies in the country in place because goodness knows God couldn't even operate in our lives if the politics aren't right. Since when? It's never true. But we live in a world, and you're going to hear that every day, every day, every day. Oil prices, economy, where it's going. It's getting bad. It's going to get worse. I mean, and you begin to do what with your faith? Believe that. I believe that. Well, well, this Bible verse says we don't fight according to the flesh. We are destroying arguments and lofty opinions that raise themselves up against knowledge of God. They are against, they are opposed, they are provided for by the God of this world who's given ideas to keep the world on course. And they're being inflamed into the hearts of men and they get broadcasted into whatever means you and I can read about it, hear about it, and get around it. The challenge for the believer is to remember every day, every moment is a battle for what thoughts you're going to believe. Which ones are you going to dwell on? You start believing the bad ones, then you want to further investigate them, right? You, see, you get a bad report about the economy and what stocks you got investment in, all of a sudden you go, and you go check that out, don't you? You want to go find it. If you're in the oil stocks right now, you're feeling a certain way. If you're into something, other kind of stock, you're, you're checking that out. How's that going? I got a bad report. And you begin to study it and take more of it in. That's true whether it's medically you've got some condition that you've just become aware of. You, you kind of do the same thing. See, that's why the Bible calls on us to fight to take hold of the eternal life to which we've been called. Because the temptation will always be to believe something else than what God has said. And there's a battle on our hands. And the world is serving it up to us. <clears throat> just make us aware. The second you go to fight in the realm of your thoughts your thoughts are going to have to compete with common, normal thoughts. What's normal in this world today? Common thoughts. Everybody else thinks this way, and here you are as a Christian thinking differently. That's a challenge. I don't know if you've realized how important it is that a people that are, that are socially connected to each other begin to hear everybody else believes this. It gets very, very hard for you to believe something different whether it's your group of friends, your family, the society that you live in, when normal belief believes this and you get at odds with that, it's a challenge. When your emotions get involved with thoughts, you have a whole other battle on your hands. Because you can know the right thing, but you don't feel like doing it. I just don't feel like doing it. I know it's the right thing. I know I should do that, but I just can't. Really, why can't you? Because I don't feel like it. I just don't feel like that. Listen, there's a huge enslavement when our feelings overrule right thinking. Huge enslavement. And other people, different people fight this in different ways because if you're more bent towards your emotions than you are to thinking, some people can think their way a little more differently than they feel. 
Know yourself. Your battle lines are going to be a challenge when God calls you to do something that you don't feel like doing. I just don't feel like I can. And I don't feel like I want to. Well, this is going to be quite a battle then, isn't it? Familiarity. You know the old phrase, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree? You look at people's lives and you realize whatever is familiar to them, whatever they grew up with that's familiar to them, they will not venture far from it. They will live close to where they live growing up. Religious profiles. I mean, you, if you're born in New Orleans, you're Catholic. If you're born in Minnesota, you're probably Lutheran. Just, you know, you're born in Georgia, you're probably Baptist. It's like, what's happening there? I mean, even now, the political scene, they're discussing which states are going to vote which way. You know, it's almost like it doesn't matter what the candidate is. This state's going to always go Democratic. This state's going to always go Republican. Why? Because the apple just doesn't fall very far. And you're going to have a hard time when the Bible's truth is a little bit out of reach for what's familiar to you. This is not how I was raised, not what I'm around, not what I'm familiar with. But it's the truth. And we have to fight for that. I want to run a quick uh, blood test on us for a moment here. <clears throat> I'm going to fly through these things. I'm not intending to do justice to them. But I just want to check for trace elements in our bloodstream. You know, you live in the world, you breathe its air. You know, so you are in an environment that thinks a certain way, feels a certain way, is passionate about certain things, is intolerant of certain things, but not of others. And if you're not careful, when you take that in and take it in and take it in and take it in, it, it informs you a little bit. You know, if we were to kind of Search for some trace elements. You know, how much postmodernism will we find in us today? I remember postmodernism, it's that, it's that philosophical approach to life. It's a system of thinking, as much as it hates systems. It's a system of thinking that, that got informed as it, it watched man travel through human experience, through the Enlightenment period into the modern period that was filled with knowledge, enlightenment. If man could just know things, and our ability to know things and discover the universe that we live in and make sense of our own lives based on our knowledge. And then technology comes along and gives us even better ability to know more. And enlightenment tells me that, that I can figure life out and we develop these systems of thought. And this is always that way and that is always that way. And, and, and we did that out of this enlightenment, this capacity of man. And it didn't work. It was man trying to make sense of life on his own, detached from God. It didn't work. So postmodernism comes along and says, that doesn't work. Let's do everything different than that. Let's definitely not think that way anymore. Let's, let's swing the pendulum in the other direction. So if before we thought we could figure everything out and knowledge was the key, now, now we're going to say you can't know really anything very certainly. You can't be certain of anything because knowledge is so vast. There's so much that you can't know and we're so limited. So knowability needs to be called into question. And since things really can't be known, well, you know, we can't really be sure about anything by any means. So therefore, there are no absolutes out there because we can't be absolutely sure. And so if there's no absolutes, then, then right and wrong, I mean, who's to say what's right and what's wrong and you know, maybe, maybe that's a moving target. Well, maybe really right and wrong has to do with really how you feel. What you feel is right and wrong. In your own conception of things, it's what you think is right and wrong. Listen, this is everywhere. You are coming in contact with this every time you listen to the news. If you just do a little bit of study on postmodernism, you'll find out just how much it is, it is in these statements. I catch these, these, these guys catching themselves and they say something on the, on the political field. And they catch themselves and they realize, ooh, ooh, that, that sounded intolerant. 
That sounded like somebody wouldn't be free to be in that category. And no, no, we need to appreciate that. You know, we need to, and there's accolades. I remember looking at this quick thought from Josh McDowell's analysis of this. He says, the way in which words have changed. Listen, he says, tolerance. Tolerance used to mean accepting others without agreeing with or sharing their beliefs or lifestyle. The postmodern meaning for tolerance is accepting that each individual's beliefs, values, lifestyle, and truth claims are equal. Yours is equal with mine. You know, so no longer can I, can I say, you know what, uh, I disagree with yours and yours is wrong, but I will still treat you with kindness and care. You're a human being. I disagree, you're wrong. Now it's I have to validate yours. And this is fun to watch these candidates do this, to watch them have to validate other positions. But then you watch what they won't validate. That'll be real fun to, to see the hypocrisy in that. Acceptance. Acceptance used to mean embracing people for who they are, not necessarily for what they say or do. The postmodern meaning says acceptance is endorsing and even praising others for their beliefs and lifestyle choices. It's real fun to watch people deal with the issue of Islam. Have at it. Say something nice about it. I mean, they squirm, but they do, don't they? And they're so uninformed. Just say what it really is. Come on, tell the truth. Well, postmodernism, you, you can't do that. Moral judgments. Moral judgments used to mean certain things are morally right and wrong as determined by God. Postmodern meaning says moral judgments. We have no right to judge another person's view or behavior. It's wrong for you to make that judgment. Personal rights used to mean everyone has the right to be treated justly under the law. Postmodern meaning says personal rights is everyone has the right to do what he or she believes is best for himself or herself. You have the right to do that. You are living in an era where modern law is going to be unhinged all over the place. It already is happening. The right of the individual at the expense of the gathered community is happening everywhere because of this thinking. Truth. Truth used to be an absolute standard of right and wrong in postmodern Language, truth is whatever is right for you. So you, this is already happening. We've already undergone an incredible change. This is seeping into us. And so be very careful how you feel about sort of relativistic thinking and plural thinking. And there's got to be other ways. I took a poll the other day about how many evangelical Christians <clears throat> believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And I forget the stat, but it was hugely uninformed. Because the church is drinking this stuff in every day and they're getting uncomfortable. Uncomfortable. See, it's, it's hard to sound a certain way when you yell and the only echo you hear is your own voice coming back. Nobody else sounds this way. Everybody else is, you know, well, all religions, everything's okay in its own way. And Christianity comes along and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And a Christian standing and saying that feels like, who? I know I feel like I've got both my shoes on backwards. I'm standing here in my underwear saying that. I feel so awkward, right? Well, that's the world that we're living. It's informing us. Let me pick on some little closer to home issues before we run out of time here. Consumerism. Consumerism is basically just that view that life is about more. It's about more. It's about having more, wanting more, needing more, right? This, this magazine special issue from Time Magazine, Style and Design. This, this is the ultimate experiment in uh, critiquing and promoting all at the same time. The headline is Luxury for the Next Generation, an in-depth look at 20-something consumers around the world. And there's actually an article that's critical of how 
the millennia generation is handling its money. Uh, you thought the boomers were conspicuous consumers? Watch out. Here come the millennials. And it goes in and it analyzes all you millennial guys and what you're after. And the fact that not only are you consumers as a lifestyle, but you consume luxury. You want way beyond what your parents wanted. You want the top, the name brand, the, the excellent. You want stuff that your parents had to wait until they were 40 and 50 years old to have. You want it when you're 25. Consumerism is in us. What's funny, though, is as you read this, one page after the other is an advertisement for watches and gadgets and beauty aids, and there's a model on every page. It's, it's the ultimate consumer profile criticizing consumerism on every page. <clears throat> what about hedonism? Hedonism's just, I'll change it to happinessism, I think is a, one we can get our hands on better. It's just that, that pursuing whatever it is you think is going to make you happy. Right? Now, this is a philosophy. Now, how much of that is in our blood? I'm going to make a decision about my life tomorrow, what I'm going to do, who I'm going to deal with, where I'll go and won't go, how much of that is being based on, do I think this will make me happy? Now, now, here's the key. Do I believe that will make me happy? Now, you have a couple of real question marks in here. Your belief system and the object of it. Where did you get the idea to even entertain that at all? Where did that get onto the scope of your radar to even tell you? You might want to consider this as a career or this relationship, or this form of pleasure. You might want to consider this because why? Because the world is sending you a message. This will make you happy. And so we pursue happiness. Now, now listen, I'm going to pick on a category that is, is kind of real to us uh, because it's more where we live than the sex, drugs, and rock and roll kind of ideas of the world. It's issues like marriage and family. Listen, this article from Newsweek just came out this week. The most recent comprehensive study on the emotional state of those with kids shows us that the term bundle of joy may not be the most accurate way to describe our offspring. (laughs) (coughs) Parents experience lower levels of emotional well-being, less frequent positive emotions, and more frequent negative emotions than their childless peers, says Florida State University's Robin Simon. In Daniel Gilbert's 2006 book, Stumbling on Happiness... The Harvard professor of psychology looks at several studies and concludes that marital satisfaction decreases dramatically after the birth of the first child and increases only when the last child has left home. He also ascertains that parents are happier grocery shopping and even sleeping than spending time with their kids. Other data cited by the 2008's gross national happiness author Arthur Brooks finds that parents are about 7% percentage points less likely to report being happy than the childless are. If you look at what's happening in the realm of marriage, marriage is, it's not a dying institution, but it's trying to. It is going through some stresses like you can't believe. And I just want to throw out to you ideas here, right? We're just talking ideas. There are ideas floating around, floating into our being. What about ideas like this? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make for him a helper suitable for him. That's an idea. You buy, you buy that? You buy that it's not good for you to be alone? Women, do you buy that, that your great role, good, great, godly role, rewarding, pleasurable role, would be being a helper to the man you're married to? See, because both of those ideas are severely under attack 
in the world today. What about ideas like be fruitful and multiply? Psalm 127, behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. You're greatly blessed. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> so if, if, if those ideas are true, well then how did Newsweek get it right? How come people don't feel like that's a good deal? Marriage is not a good deal. Parenting is not a good deal. I'd be more happy if I didn't have marriage or children in my life. Put in your outline there. I can feel good about marriage and parenting as long as I don't see them as impediments to my happiness. What happens when the world starts telling me they are? They are impediments to me being happy. All right here, look at the current trends in our pursuit of happiness. The number of births out of wedlock. Now, I'm going to give you Europe first because if, wherever Europe is, America follows eventually. The number of births out of wedlock in Sweden, the figure is 56%. These are people who have disposed of marriage, don't need marriage, don't want marriage. It would not be rewarding for me, not, would not be a source of pleasure for me. So 56% of all births are out of wedlock in Sweden. In France, it's 48%. In Britain, it's 42%. Germany, it's 28%. In Germany, one survey shows only 38% of women favor marriage. I thought it, God said it was a good thing. Apparently not. Apparently he was mistaken. Newly released Census Bureau figures emphasize that over the last decades of the 20th, 20th century, the size of U.S. families has shrunk. Since 1970, the percentage of households containing five or more people has fallen by half. The census did also note that the proportion of young, never-married singles has increased dramatically in the U.S. That's particularly true for women of a certain age. The number of households consisting of single women, 30 to 34, has tripled since 1970. Why are those statistics what they are? Because people act on ideas. People have begun to believe something. I put in your outline, it's not that parenting or marriage has become fundamentally harder but that we've been taught to have other appetites that marriage and parenting compete with. Now listen, if I want to draw some blood on my own veins and find out, is this in me? Do I I feel this way? See, because, you know, if I was here, we could all be safe if I I just told, chose to focus today on on the philosophy of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. How many people just live in a lifestyle of sex, drugs, and rock and roll? Yeah, brother, preach it, man. Come on. I'm with you. Those people living that way, whoa, worldly, whoo. But when you pick on things like consumerism, the quest for more all the time, you know, one of the things the next quote there talks about is the fact that in spite of the fact that families are shrinking in size, houses are becoming larger and larger. It talk, and it uses the word freedom. People have this freedom now to act on their whims and their impulses. They shrink their families, uh, their, their families and they build castles. Well, you know, if you let your family get too big, you won't be able to afford that castle. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. it, it's this inhibiting thing. You invite inhibition into your life. You invite something that causes you to have to say no. Why are there so many folks who are avoiding marriage? Because for me to yoke my life with somebody else is going to force me to have to say no. And see, I'm living in a world where I breathe in every day, consume things, get things, get what you want. You have rights. 
Entitlement is everywhere. Foster your world so that's just what you want all the time. Well, marriage will put a spike in that like nothing will. Because you literally have become one with another person. And that other person has needs, ideas, wants, preferences that you may actually have to say no to. And then you bring children in that environment, you have to say no to a bunch of other things that you might want. And you become irritated by parenting and marriage. And next thing you know, you don't want that in your life. Listen, take a blood test real fast and find out, is this in you, church? There are elements of us that we're ambitious for things. Do you understand the Bible? Again, it's upside down. It flips this thing upside down. Jesus presents himself as the ultimate prize, the ultimate satisfaction in my life. And the way that I get there is through the cross. The ultimate way for me to experience benefit and reward and pleasure in my life is through dying. Remember, Jesus said, you want to follow me? Deny yourself. That doesn't play in this world today. Denying self never plays well today. Because the world is telling you, get all the gusto you can. Get everything you can for yourself. And if your marriage gets in the way, get rid of it. If your children are in the way, well, don't have children to start with because then you'll keep them out of the way. But if you do, if they get in your way too much, then figure out a life that you can get them to the side because you got to get everything you can get. Go after money. Go after pleasure. But the Bible presents dying to self as a means of reward. Does that sound rewarding to you? It doesn't to me, unless I have my eyes opened by the Spirit, and I see truth, and I realize that thing that's uncomfortable to me, that thing that I'm running away from with all my might, when my eyes see it through the Spirit, and I must decrease that he may increase. All of a sudden, my, my spirit wants that. I want that, even if it costs me, even if it's difficult to me. But listen, When I breathe in the world, the world is not trafficking in those ideas. The world is competing and against those ideas because the God of this world has fueled that. Matt, go ahead and and come. I I wish I had a little bit more time here. But what I want, all those verses that are there before you, they're there because the Bible speaks about the world a certain way. Read through them and think of the implications of what these verses are saying. You and I, are, we're, we're called to be in this world. We are called to be here. We're on a mission, that passage in John 17. Jesus says, I don't pray for them to be taken out of the world. But Father, that you keep them from the evil one. See, Jesus is aware when he looks at the world... There is a power and a principality. There's an individual running the show. If they're going to stay in this environment, Father, I pray you keep them from the evil one. We are here on a mission. The idea of Amish approaches to life and monastic approaches to Christianity are not biblical. The way to deal with the world is not to withdraw from it so that you can have no contact with it. No, the Bible calls you into contact It just calls you to not be corrupted by that which you make contact with. So we're to be in the world. But what a challenge to be in it and not become of it. To not get it in our veins and have the same ideas informing us as to what's really important. 
Let me warn us here in Matthew 13. I'm going to just talk about this passage. Jesus prayed a prayer that the people of God would be sanctified in the truth. He says, your word is truth. Matthew 13 says, as for what was sown among thorns. This is the one who hears the word. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Do you, do you want fresh respect for the environment that you live in? It is a toxic environment. It kills the growth of the word of God in your life. They're, these are people who heard the word, and yet it did not produce an effect in their lives. Listen, I, I wonder how many Christians hear the word of God, it's preached, they read it, and they would stand and they'd say, you know what, I've tried that, I've tried to believe that, I've tried Christianity, it just, it just doesn't work for me. In other words, it hasn't produced the fruit that it said that it would produce. Why is that? Is it because the word really doesn't do what it said it would do? Or is it, according to this verse, the environment of your bloodstream already has too much toxins in it? You already want too much of the world. The world's concepts and ideas have already found their way into you. They make sense. They're what you traffic in. So when the word of God comes, it doesn't produce because it gets choked by what's already in us. Listen, I want to leave here today with a greater awareness of the environment that I draw my breath in. Every day when I wake up, I breathe in the air of the world. Be aware. This world is on a course. It is guided in the way in which it goes. And you must be very, very careful that when you wake in the morning, you are aware, whether you're looking at your little night or whatever it is, that you are ready to play defense and protect your heart from the world. And you are ready to fight through the world in order to lay hold of the promises of God in your life. So you just can't get up and bind the devil. Because before the devil showed up in your particular house, he already infected the world system. And so now your neighbor is going to share with you the devil's ideas. So the devil never gets to you. The billboard that he's advertising on, the TV show, the news broadcast, your relatives who are giving you advice and looking at you like you got two heads when you tell them you're going to do this with your life and you're not going to do that and you're going to stay in a relationship that looks like it's a, you're a fool. Why don't you pursue something that'll satisfy you and you look like a moron because you're doing things in a way the world would never do. When you get up in the morning, you need to be aware. I need to protect myself from those ideas and I need to fight through them to lay hold of the life to which I've been called. Let's stand up together. Lord, I pray today that you would affect our lives with insights from your word. Lord, I pray that you would not allow us to become numb or dull to your definition and use of this word, the world. 
what an environment. And God, when we awake tomorrow, we walk from here, Lord, we will breathe its air. And that air will contain thoughts and words. And those words will cry out for our belief. And Lord, if we ingest them by faith, they will poison our soul. God, would you help us? Help us to be wise in this world. Help us. Father, answer the prayer of your son. Sanctify us in the truth. Your word is truth. Lord, I pray for discernment in this place, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see where where have I been taking in the world in categories that I may not be aware. Lord, help me to be humble enough to receive your analysis in my heart and not just applaud the fact that I'm no longer a drug user. Stopped doing that years ago. Great. But I'm taking in the world in other categories and I live for its reward and its pleasures. God, open our eyes in categories that we are not safe. And Lord, I pray that you'd make us a people that when you call us to enlarge the kingdom of God, when you call us to the fight of advancing the glory of God upon the earth, God, we will know how to wage war with our appetites of the flesh. We will know how to fight against the world and its ideas. And we will know how to submit ourselves to you and resist the devil so that we might fulfill and find fulfillment and joy by the Holy Spirit in this world, yet not of it. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 I bless you guys. Have a great week.